Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to My Favourite Takeaway, the show for people who love food but can't always be bothered to cook it. This is the show where myself, Tom Crane, and my friend Simran Shah hi. go into the homes hi. of cele- hi, hi. Hi. <laughs> go into the homes. Oh, always go always chip in there. Go into the homes <laughs> of celebrities to share their favourite takeaway with them exactly how they'd have it. Now you say hi. Now you say hi, Sim. <laughs> hi, hi, hi. There hi. you go. There's your hand. How are you, Sim? How are you? Well, my voice is croakier than usual. I think I've got this sort of, and you know why? It's because I'm a bit ill, Crane. But I've also, I can tell, I'm also just trying really hard to maintain the croakiness because I, th- I think I quite <laughs> like it. But I am, I is, it's covering up what's actually quite a pathetic cold. <laughs> the, I'm to make it I, sound really, I know what really you mean. Though. There's a thing where, like, yes, there is. There's a thing where about five days into any cold, I suddenly think I sound really hot. It's like a, like a one day window. This was five minutes into the cold. I was immediately like, God, check me out. God damn it. <laughs> Leaning into your girlfriend with a whiskey <laughs> and a cigar saying, hey, do you come here often? It's our living room. It's our living room. Um, are, are you feeling awful? Are you feeling okay? Are you, are you feeling awful? Or you're all right. I'm, not, I'm feeling all right. I'm feeling all right. But, but you know what I did is uh, I was immediately not hungry, which is a problem. Because usually <laughs> I'm immediately hungry as soon as I wake up, immediately hungry all the yep. time. And it's that I wasn't like, okay, I'm starving. I wasn't, I'm not starving at the moment, which is obviously a real problem for me because I like to eat. Yes. It got to about 1 p.m. and I hadn't eaten anything. So I was like, I am now getting hungry. I need to eat. Yeah. And I was just trying to think, what is it that I want to eat? And it reminded me of like, I've got a weird thing when I'm ill. It's not that weird, but I just crave warm pita bread and taramasalata. That's it. That's all oh, I want. Oh, really? Eat. Warm pita okay. and a taramasalata. La di da. And that is. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> I mean, I, I think we can tell from that the sort of school you went to and your upbringing. That is warm pita bread and taramasalata. It's the top three poshest things I've ever heard. It's remarkable. What? What? I don't eat for forty-eight hours. Then I have a Domino's. That's where I am. But you're. Uh, well, I wow. finish it off with a lovely comfy duck, and it just makes me feel. Wash it down with a Pinot Noir. <laughs> oh, not a Pinot Noir with a Chateauneuf de Pape. Upgrade. come on and then you're off you're out yeah. <laughs> but it made me th- it made me think like so okay so when you're ill tom yeah. what do you do you have like a weird habit do you have a weird food choice something that you eat to make you feel com- comfy what's yeah. your like what's your what are your weird eating habits when you're feeling sick well, mine's already a weird eating habit my uh, mine would be a blt that's my thing baking lettuce tomato quite a lot of mayonnaise um i think that's because that is what I was given when I was younger, when I was ill. I think there is a thing that, you know, I get that and Lucasade, that's what I'd have in bed when I was off school sick. And there's that kind of like nostalgic security that comes with mm. that. So I'm not too weird. Sometimes I just won't eat for, as I say, for days. And then I'll basically binge. As soon as a moment I feel I'm getting better, <laughs> like my first meal I can handle, I'm going, right, now I want all the food. <laughs> I want all the food that Deliveroo or, or Uber Eats or any of the apps can bring me. That is 100% the cue. That's the cue to, that's the cue to eat whatever you want immediately you feel like i deserve it i yeah, deserve yeah, yeah. i deserve i need it. a muck delivery that's what i need i need a big mac in bed it's the first time <laughs> so look we want to know what your eating habits are when you feel ill do you have something that you eat that is particularly nostalgic something that maybe your mum yeah. gave you your dad gave you when you were growing up or or equally 
weird, weird things that you would have delivered, things you get, okay, I need to get something sent to my house or sort me out now. I mean, what, what is there any takeaway food that you have sent yeah. to you, basically? Anything you think that will, will sort you out when you're ill? You know, one of the things you're supposed to have, of course, uh, look at this for a slick link, Simran, is, is a hot curry. That is a thing that is supposed to sort you out. And we have, last week, we asked some correspondence on oh, weird right, okay, food. Oh, no, I've got the link now, yep. <laughs> you see what I'm doing here? I was you're, lost. You're in the I link. Was lost. I was like, what the, where the hell is this link it's going to? Enjoy the link. It's like you're in the okay, matrix. Okay, you're okay, seeing okay. everything move in slow motion. So okay, yes, what you sorry. need is a hot curry. And last week, we asked the correspondence on weird combinations of food you enjoy, strange things that shouldn't sit together that you do enjoy. And our first email we had in was about a hot curry, wasn't it? Look at that for a link. It was about a hot curry, and it was from a man called Joshua. What did Joshua send us? Well, Josh sent us a uh, little note saying, not sure if this is weird compared to the monstrosities that I've already heard on this podcast, but whenever I get an Indian takeaway, I have to have my curry accompanied with buttered Jacob's cream crackers. Yeah. Don't knock it till you try it. Is that, is don't knock it till you try it, the cream cracker slogan? Or is he just, is that just, <laughs> that actually, he just said that. So cream crackers with your curry. I'll tell you what I think. It, it seems to me like the sort of thing an old British guy would have eaten in India during the empire when he was refusing to assimilate, basically. <laughs> so he's refusing to let go <laughs> of what he eats back home. And he's, he's been served a curry and then he's getting his Jacob's crackers out and going, I am British and this is what I'm having. It feels like a weird thing to clean. I mean, what, what do you think? Do you, do you can see the logic in it. Well, to be honest, I don't think this is weird. I think, Josh, I, don't, I think you think this is weird, but you're essentially just having some carbs with your curry well and, and the carbs are just slightly crispier a bit like a poppadom i mean i just don't think there's anything particularly weird about this so do you do you basically think that a cream cracker is just a thick poppadom is that what you're saying i think you can eat any carb with your curry and that's fine you can eat a cracker you can have a crisp you can have a sweet potato you can have a potato you can have pasta i don't really care you say that so if, if you're you, eating if you're eating penne with your if you're eating penne with your butter chicken <laughs> then maybe that's a bit weird exactly. i don't mind i just think generally what what you said here josh is that you like carbs with your curry, and this time your carb is is just a is cream cracker. I mean, the, I disagree, Simra. I I don't think the any carb rule works. If if we got a if we got a takeaway together, let's say I got my jam yeah. out, and then I got out a grab bag of Monster Munch and I started pouring those in. You're going to think that's those things I would shouldn't be you. together. I would say <laughs> you're adding the seasoning that's lacking in the curry. Ah. You're supplying it with the Monster Munch, as most curries probably lack a bit of seasoning. Okay, interesting. Okay, I, I do see what you're saying. I'm, I'm, okay, my point of view for this would be that it's too much crunch that's what i say i do see that it's in the same world of the poppadon but i think a jacob's cracker has got too much heft it's too much crunch to go with it however i am willing to be proven wrong so this week sim i'm going to get a curry and i get some jacob's crackers and i'm going to record myself on my phone trying it i'll give you some honest feedback next oh, week no, about no, whether no, it's no, too no, much tom, crunch tom, tom, the right tom. I, I, i'll tell you one thing we don't need is you recording yourself eating a curry with a very dry <laughs> jacob's cream cracker no one no one's asking for that the listeners are not are not asking for this okay maybe what you could do is maybe take a couple of pictures of, of you doing it and then just give us some feedback <laughs> No, it's happening. It's good content. It's good content. Okay. It's basically it's an audio VT. That's what it is. Uh, we can cut out the chomping if we need, but next week I'll give you honest feedback. We, but that's that's not the only weird food combo we've had this week. No, we've had another food combination. So we've had another weird one coming from Alice in West Sussex. Let's see if this actually is weird, all yeah. right? Because Josh, yours wasn't weird to me. All right, here we go. Now I love strawberry jam, says Alice quite aggressively. <laughs> That's the end of the email. That's it. Love the podcast. Cheers. Bye. I love strawberry jam with bacon sandwiches. However, when I say sandwich, I mean croissant. Okay. You oven warm the croissant. That's uh, normal. Slice it open, a bit of butter, two normal things. Lots Mm -hmm. of strawberry jam and then crispy streaky bacon. It's sweet, salty, and buttery. An epic hangover breakfast. I would argue, once again, this is not a weird food combo. This is an excellent food combination because alice has described the three things that you want in a morning sweet salty and buttery this couldn't be better 100%. alice i'm 100 behind you on this i encourage everyone to try this out i think it'd be excellent simran couldn't agree with you more this is exactly what you need like i'll tell you what, another winner is actually uh, jam peanut butter and bacon in a sandwich is a winner and also sometimes when i go to a 
uh, cafe and I get a full English breakfast, I will ask for marmalade on the side, which I will claim is for the toast at the end, but it actually isn't. I have it with the sausages and with stuff like this because I like the sweetness with it. I, it really works. I do the same thing. I just ask for a bit of tarama slata on the side of my full English breakfast. <laughs> And then just pay to finish your forty-seven pound full English in the in the <laughs> Ivy or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. So so Alice, I'm behind that completely. I think that's a good idea. Well, as always, thank you so much for sending in uh, your correspondence. We we love hearing for you. You send us so much great stuff, and we we love to share your lunacy with other listeners. As Simran was saying, this week we want you to send us stuff on foods that make you feel better when you're ill the weird things you go to when you've got a cold or you're feeling a bit sick or strange things you have delivered to your house anything that gives you that pick you up just when you need it you can email us on hello at my com, or use one of these many many other forms of communication You can follow us on Insta on My Favourite Takeaway Podcast, on Twitter on Fav Takeaway Pod, or email us hello at myfavouritetakeawaypodcast.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right, next up, we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Annie Gray, who is a food historian, and she talks to us about the history of takeaways. Now, this is a very special episode for us because Dr. Annie Gray is uh, one of Britain's leading food historians. She's a regular on BBC Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet. She was a consultant and presenter on BBC 2's Victorian Bakers. And she's also appeared on The Great British Bake Off. She's published four books about the history of food from like the uh, 1600s to the present day. And she's even written a book about the biography of Winston Churchill and his relationship with food, which is really fascinating. So it was a really enriching and exciting conversation with Annie. She talked to us about the history of takeaways all the way dating back to the medieval times. I really hope you enjoy it. I think Tom and I had a great time chatting to her. I loved it. It was was absolutely fascinating. Also, there's quite a few things that you can sort of learn and then repeat as if they're your own facts, really. (laughs) which is great (laughs) if you're at a dinner party or you're struggling with conversation in a pub just remember a couple of things and chuck them out you know and you'll you'll seem so fascinating uh this is dr annie gray enjoy so today we're going to be discussing the history of takeaway food this is a special episode we're delighted to be joined by someone who has no one more suited to to tell us about the history of british takeaway food Um, but before we do that i think it's important we talk to you about your takeaway loves Annie and are are you someone who gets many takeaways what's your sort of vibe takeaway wise well full disclosure I can't eat onions which is a real problem (laughs) when it comes to most takeaway so I I get that one out there that sounds like the sort of thing someone would say on would I lie to you I know (laughs) it's ridiculous isn't it it's a family intolerance my father my brother my grandmother my great-grandmother I mean we are like a restaurateur's joy we turn up en masse (laughs) most of us can't eat onions so what would happen would you would you be ill or what happens is it kind of I would have about three hours before the world fell out of my bottom so yes oh Oh, god when did you discover this it's, I was aware it might happen because of the fact that my father can't eat them and all the rest of it. Uh, so I spent most of my teenage years mainlining onions, thinking I might get to a point where I can't do this. So I was I was 21 when I discovered I couldn't eat them. I ate a huge bowl of French onion soup that I had just prepared. And then about three hours later, I went, OK, the family allergies hit me. Oh, no. I could eat them when they're reduced down. I play fast and loose with my digestion because I do quite like things <laughs> like a really, really good curry. 
And I find that as long as there's no extra onions in it, I'm kind of okay. But it, it does take some of the fun out of it if you're working the next day, especially if you're working the next day in corsets. <laughs> I have a similar allergy to Harissa. That's my thing. And I found that out on a date on Upper Street. (laughs) And I was so violently ill, I had to go and lie down in the toilet. And I basically blacked out. And I texted her to say, would you mind calling for an ambulance? (laughs) Crikey. But uh, she came in, or someone came in. And then two or three minutes later, I was was better. And we didn't need to do that. But yeah, I I, I feel your pain. It's horrific. Dramatic panic as well. Dramatic, yeah, yeah, yeah. So your takeaway options are limited then. So so what what can you go for? Um, my go-to is really boring. I really love a good fish and chips, and I'm mm. extremely fussy about fish and chips. It's got to be good. It's got—I mean, it's got to be great. I think that bad fish and chips is one of life's most crushing disappointments. <laughs> if you are, uh, say, a foreign tourist, you've arrived in London for the first time, you've heard about this quintessential British dish, which is, you know, the most British thing you can possibly eat. You're, if British food was elsewhere, this would be, you know, going for a British. And you're really, <laughs> really, really excited. And then you turn up at the Tower of London and you go to the chippy outside the Tower of London and you have those. Yep. You know, you'd want to throw yourself in the Thames, quite frankly. Just awful. So what makes good fish and chips then? What, what what for you constitutes good fish and chips? The best chippy I know is in Haxby in Yorkshire. Now, there are lots mm. and lots of good chippies. I haven't sampled them all, although obviously I do when I can. Uh, that's my go-to food. If I'm on a gig, that's my treat to myself is to spend <laughs> two hours wrecking the local chippies yeah. uh, to try and find the best one. Uh, and the best one I know of is in Haxby and it's called Miller's. And they do a thing called a light bite. And it's perfect because it's not huge. And this is Yorkshire, so there's a risk. I've had you know, sharks <laughs> hanging off the plates in Yorkshire before now. But this is a light bite in an eco-friendly box that ticks all my middle-class boxes about the disposability of the wrappers and all the rest of it. And you get a perfect piece of fish, but it's cooked really well. So the fish is steamed perfectly within. It's just still marbled. And the batter is really crispy. And you get just a few bits that oh. stick up that you can mm-hmm. break off oh. while you're sort of, you know, oh. plating it up or whatever you're doing or sitting in the car. Yeah. Then you get the perfect <sighs> amount of chips Beef dripping, oh. always beef dripping. And you've got the chip where it's, it's, they're not triple fried or any of this other kind of rubbish. They're just good because it's the right potato and they've been fried at the right temperature. So you get the double crisp that is the perfect chip. Yes. But they're still fluffy inside. This is why when you say potatoes are heavy, no, get the right variety of potato. And then mushy peas, always mushy peas, but they're so often disappointing. I mean, you know, you sometimes find people who have literally bashed garden peas just get in the sea. And they need to be not too sweet. They need to be not too acidic. Again, you've got to get the right level of vinegar. What are your thoughts on, I've started when I make mushy peas at home, I think this is a Diana Henry recipe, a bit of mint through it is lovely, through mushy peas. It gives it a sort of sharpness. It it really does work. It does. It's a little outro for me if I'm having it with fish and chips, to be honest. It's very good in a home context. I'm not sure that it's right when you're having it with a wooden, wooden chip fork, sitting in your car with the window steaming up, thinking this car is going to smell a fish and chips for week. <laughs> really should open a window. My fish and chip order, which I probably I let myself down, I feel a bit depressed even just thinking about it. I get fish, chips, mushy peas and a battered sausage on the side. Ooh. Not a bad order. Which I will always claim to my girlfriend has been put in there by mistake. I will always say, oh, they've put, why have they put that in there? Why is there a sausage again? <laughs> again Gosh. for the 52nd time in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on to uh, the subject of history and the history of British takeaways? Just to allay any worries you have, uh, Annie, i got to be in A-level history, so you're, you're dealing with someone who knows their stuff. <laughs> we're going to be fine. Um, we Basically, what we were hoping is you could maybe take us through the history of takeaways and how, how we've got to the point that we are now. Should we start by sort of going back to the very beginnings of takeaways here in Britain? I mean, what, what, where did it start? What, what, what was the vibe? What was happening? Well, how long have we got is the first question. Takeaways are one of those things where the idea of takeaway is quite nebulous. I think even today it is because sometimes a takeaway is fast food and then you think about burgers and things like that. Sometimes you think takeaway and you think about the sort of trad English stuff, fish and chips, but also Mm. Indian, which is incredibly traditional British these days. And sometimes you think about street food, which, of course, now has got its own name and is a thing, whereas back in the day it was the A10 van that sold you know tea and polystyrene cups and a sandwich and all of those really come under the heading of of takeaway I suppose when you start looking at it historically because all of them did similar things and I would also add into that the idea of caterers because 
for a long time in the past, if you were having takeout, it was usually because you either couldn't be bothered to cook or couldn't cook because you didn't have money or because you didn't have the facilities. So catered meals are another section of takeout that I think we don't really think about because if we're doing it, we get our, whatever it is, our, our brilliant Thai takeout and we might open all the plastic containers and decant it all onto plates, but we might not. But if you look, say, in the 18th century, uh, in particular, you would often order dessert in because dessert was incredibly specialist. It was really hard to cook in-house. It required, you know, ludicrous amounts of skill. So you, you might cook your meal in-house or have your cook cook your meal in-house, but you'd order in dessert. So it's kind of takeout, but not. Uh, so that's, I think, the first thing to say is that it encompasses loads of different territories. Really, you can go back as far as you want to in terms of takeout. I mean, you, people building Stonehenge were eating food outside, which they bought from somewhere. So you can go back to the Neolithic age if you want to. But I suppose the easiest thing to do is to look at Roman Britain, because yeah. that's where we've got evidence from. So we know that the Romans were very, very fond of takeout for all of the reasons listed above kind of thing. So you've got the poor who didn't have the facilities to cook. And we know that in Rome itself, people lived in high-rise buildings, effectively tenements, and you just didn't have cooking facilities. But the same was true in Britain as well. In a city, you wouldn't have facilities. Much, much easier to go to one of the many, many, many taverns or inns or chop houses, as they would later become known, and just buy yourself some dinner. And you might eat it on the spot. Or you might take it home. And the Romans ate a huge variety of food. So, you know, go for it. Yeah, so what was the sort of daily diet of your, your average Roman? I suppose Roman in Britain. Uh, rich and poor. Differing hugely. There's a lot of meat if you can afford it. So one of the things we know we sold on, on the street were things like lamb chops. And you find that out because the drains in things like Roman forums are blocked with lamb bones because people oh, wow. are gnawing on them and chucking them in the street. <laughs> so you've got things like that. But I mean, it's a whole plethora of things, lots of olives, figs, things like that that are easy to pick up and nibble on. Roast meats, really, really popular. Pork eaten an awful lot. Things that you can prepare easily and sell on the street and people can then either take home or not. So in many ways... It's exactly the same as today. But also the Romans did eat an awful lot of things like offal and uh, various things that today people wouldn't touch. And, but they also had the first burger. So you get a thing called... What was, what was a Roman burger like then? What, there what is a that? thing called a Roman burger, a precursor to a burger, which is essentially meat wrapped up in cool fat. So cool fat's the stuff you get in the inner lining of the thorax. Um, right. It looks like a beautiful lacy cobweb. Uh, today you will find it still used in Britain, uh, wrapped around faggots. So okay. uh, that mm. stuff that you get that looks like a sort of... Like a mesh net. Yeah, exactly. Is there any more appetising phrase than wrapped around the thorax? I think that's really... It does what it says on the tin, though, doesn't it? And it's really good and it's sticky and you can use it to roll around things. It's just the kind of like cling film of its day. So when you, t- you talk there about selling on the street... Who were the people that were running these stalls? What what was their training? Are, the, are these people who are, there's no chefs, are they, per se? Is, is, it, is it people who are chancing this as a business? And how, how does it work exactly? Is it markets? What is it? A lot of the answer is we don't know. Um, but some of the slightly more nuanced answer is an awful lot of different people. We know there were slaves, freed slaves, uh, people who'd set up on their own. And again, it's like today, you know, if you say to me, well, what's the typical chef like? Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, a man or a woman, <laughs> rich or poor, fat and thin, um, you know, yes. it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing. So we know this stuff was being eaten. We know it was wide, really widespread in Roman Britain because of the fact that it was a vibrant economy, that it had big cities comparatively, and that people, lots of workers converged on those cities. And the, anywhere you get lots of people together and not brilliant cooking facilities, someone is going to start a business. So there are people eating these foods and they're eating a lot of different things and they're eating them at all different times of the day as well. This is the original sort of 24-7 culture, really. What were they eating with, Annie? Was it still cutlery, as we would imagine it now, knives and forks and stuff? Or was it a mixture of hands and spoons and other things like... Um, no, I thinking other things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I ran out of other different types of cutlery. <laughs> I, I've answered my own question. Thanks. Chopsticks. <laughs> Largely hands and, and, and spoons. Uh, the fork, which is a whole brilliant area of study. What you would try not to do was to say fork, because you knew that the fork doesn't come in until 17th century. Uh, everything but forks is the answer. The spoon and the knife is what you had, basically, in, in Roman times. Okay, fair enough. We'll digress marginally. 
forks are cool because forks get used for sweet things up to the 16th century, largely things in syrup, so fruit in booze basically, or fruit in syrup. And you get these brilliant things called sucket forks, which you should never say when drunk. <laughs> and then slowly the fork creeps away from just being for dessert and enters the main course. <clears throat> but they're so rare for a while that people have to carry their forks with them. So there's a brief period of history where if you go to dinner, you're kind of advised really to take your travelling knife, fork and spoon set with you because you don't know whether the person you're going to go and see will provide you with the fork or not. And it's a little bit awkward if they are not of your kind of class. Be like wow. you know, turning up today and they haven't got Himalayan pink sea salt on the table or something. It would just be... <laughs> Immediately have to leave. Yeah, you'd have to just go. A doctor once told me that I should carry a fork with me at all times in my pocket after a consultation because, this is generally true, I get really bad static electric shocks constantly. <laughs> and I went to see a doctor and it turns out that when I walk, I drag my feet and I charge myself up throughout the day. <laughs> so he gave me the option of either wearing these rubber rings that go around your feet uh, or having a rubber mat underneath my desk at all time, or one, this is what he tells a lot of people to do: is to carry a fork with them in their pocket, and you discharge yourself. What earth yourself? You earth yourself on the fork throughout the day. This is generally what I was told to do uh, by a GP. Have you thought about the fact that you might be the solution to the fact that we don't make electric batteries for cars in this country? <laughs> you could just sell yourself to the government. Amazing. Just have me walking around on some astroturf for an hour, and I'll charge yeah. for it. Yeah, but yeah, so that's I, I didn't do it. For, your, for my own dignity, I couldn't have a fork. Couldn't be discharging myself. I kind of feel that's a mental image that I want, though, actually. You're just sauntering <laughs> through the streets, just occasionally going, hang on a minute, I need to just earth myself. <laughs> so people had their personal personal cutlery that they would carry with them for all yeah. mealtimes, basically. Is that, is that yeah. what it was? That you'd have yeah. like a tool belt of stuff that would get you through the yeah. day? Well, what happens if you suddenly want a snack? Yeah. And you've got nothing to eat it with, so you're going to carry your knife. Were there some people selling, you know, these cutlery belts with, like, extra additions on it so you could have your little seasoning? You've got your salt and pepper there as well. <laughs> you've, got, you've, you've got your condiments. <laughs> it's that scene in Friends when Joey turns up with the fork. He's actually way ahead of his time. Yeah, well, or, or way behind his time. In case you walk past a stand that's selling delicious thorax lining and you really, <laughs> really fancy stuff. <laughs> well, there was a vague gentleman carrying nutmeg graters with them in the 18th century, and you get very, very beautiful pocket nutmeg graters for gentlemen. Well, well, well. The little kind of door on to carry your nutmeg with you. So so we laugh, and yet the fashionable gentleman uh, at the time of sort of Austin and slightly before would be carrying their spicing around with them. Fascinating. Takeaways, obviously, as you say, very popular in Roman times because of the way people ate and the way people lived. As we move into sort of medieval Britain, how, how are things starting to, to change? I mean, is it still the same culture? Is, is the food culture changing? Are people still... Uh, starting to eat, from, to cook from the home? How are things changing? Well, after, after Romans leave, clearly you have a certain a partial collapse of, of Britain in terms of its urban environment and its infrastructure. So it does take quite a long time for things to come sort of back to where the Romans left, as it were, and certainly for larger cities to develop. But cooking street food or takeout is still incredibly important because you've still got both a large set of poor people, uh, usually urban poor people who don't have facilities and can't afford to buy lots of ingredients en masse and cook them or don't have the time. And at the other end of the scale, you still also have the rich who frankly just want the convenience from time to time of having a catered meal. So both these sets of what we would now call takeouts still very much exist. And you see it in Chaucer, where one of the characters in the Canterbury Tales uh, is, a, is a dodgy pie man, he's renowned for <laughs> making dodgy pies. And the, the big street food, the big takeout in the medieval era is pies, because we've now got the technology to make a really big pie with a crust which is edible, and could be eaten, but could also be reused. And you get really good pies for the rich to take home and have. So things like a, a lark pie or heron pie or busted pie or you know various things we've either eaten to extinction or are now entirely illegal to eat. And those would be the things that rich would buy, take home and, and have as part of their meal at home, quite possibly. But then at the other end of the scale, you get things like eel pie um, or sort of vegetable pies, which are much more aimed at the poor. Oysters, really, really popular as well because they're very, very cheap. So oysters are sold both by themselves and in pies. I mean, pretty much medieval Britain, if you could put it in a pie, you put it in a pie and you sold it. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's so interesting about oysters because oysters now are sort of seen as a luxury. So when did that suddenly change? At 1830s, really. Oysters are cheap food for ages. When people first start to discover the States and North America and when Western 
colonists start to sort of colonialise uh, parts of North America, they can't believe the size of the oysters. They're the size of babies, they say, because, of course, they've not really been fished. So they're eating these enormous oysters and, then of course, they eat loads of them and then eventually there aren't any more enormous oysters left because the, that line between if we eat it all, it's not going to be there anymore hasn't quite been drawn. And oysters filter the water. So any time you get polluted water, it's going to affect the oysters. It's why so many people die from eating oysters, because they are filtering all the time. So if uh, your water is dodgy, yeah. the oyster will take it in. And because at various times in history, we have eaten oysters raw as well as cooked, eating a raw oyster is quite a good way to get ill if you're eating it from dodgy water. Uh, and also, dodgy, get, the water gets dodgy enough and all the oysters die. So we have successive waves of uh, disease which kill off the oysters. And eventually, in the 19th century, you start to see them really climb in price. They don't get really expensive till the late part of the 19th century, when you really do start to see an oyster shortage. Uh, and after that, of course, they then gain their reputation for being an aphrodisiac because they both look like genitalia, but all if you squint, and also <laughs> are really expensive, which tends to mean that they are called an aphrodisiac. And co- correct me if I'm wrong, Annie, but medieval men would always carry around a small bottle of Tabasco with them as well, wouldn't they? Just to uh, yeah, yeah, just to yeah. top it off in case they found remains. It's normally a very <laughs> yeah, they put it in their cod piece normally. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you said there about reusable pie crusts. So, what, how does that work? So, people would eat the. Do you mean that people would eat these? What's inside the pie and then reuse it to make a new pie? So, again, if you think about life before the fork, it's quite hard to chop your way through a pie. You, you can sort of cut it, but these yeah. pies are enormously thick because vessels that go in the oven. While it's sort of theoretically possible, you can put earthenware in the oven. It's not really a problem. Think about uh, a pie really as a casserole dish. When did the pie go out of fashion? then and what replaced it it didn't really go out of fashion until the victorian era but you get other stuff coming in uh if you think about the traditional east end foods eel pie of course Mm. is the one thing that we all think oh hang on a minute yes Uh, so eel pie was really big in the victorian era but they were slightly different pies by then they were pies where you would very much eat the crust and where you might well sit down and eat the whole thing through rather than these enormous pie coffins that could be reused but pies are kind of the ultimate street food they're the ultimate yeah. picnic food. Yeah. They're the ultimate takeout because they come contained. And you can send them to people as well. As long as you stop at the air hole with a bit of fat, the stuff inside will keep. So pies were really popular for sending as gifts. So I suppose the equivalent today of going and doing a cheese order for your best mate because they're down at the weekend, you just bung a pie in the post. Uh, and suddenly <laughs> your, your friends are like, wow, I love you. You sent me a venison pasty. How can I ever repay you? So the, the pie man, wh- wh- how are these people setting up, not in terms of the, the huge ovens in in sort of the richer areas? I mean, were they street sellers? Were they selling in markets? How were, was the common person going to get their pies? I mean, it wasn't delivered. Was it, there was no delivery or anything. No, well, I probably was delivery it certainly was delivery slightly later on because you know if you've got a chance to make money you're going to make money aren't you really okay but it's only delivery down the street really a lot of them are sort of ambulance sellers so just shops as we know them this kind of fixed place where you go and you go in and you browse and then you browse a bit more and then eventually you leave going oh my god i wish i hadn't done that those are very much a sort of post-medieval invention there are fixed shops they tend to be butchers because obviously it's hard to move a butcher uh, although you also get butchers on market stalls and you get things like the shambles so think about york where you've got that infamous street the shambles where the houses almost touch and all the windowsills are very very wide and you've got butchers hooks hanging above them that is your typical kind of late medieval street where right. what would have happened is all those windows there wasn't glazing so that they would all have been open and you'd go to the window effectively and, and ask for whatever you wanted and shambles were renowned because they ran with blood and they were quite unhygienic areas and there was a lot of awful and smell and noise and people thwacking things with cleavers so when it comes to cook shops as they were often known you would go to the window you would ask for what you want you would take it and you would take it away and often the facilities inside were no more than a domestic kitchen so in addition to your pies you're you're also having sort of roast meats because those are quite easy you just have a spit in front of a fire and you can pay a small boy to turn that spit for however long it takes and then you can just hack bits off 
So very oh. much similarly to Donna Kebabs today, except, of course, they're on the vertical spit. And you will get fried meats as well. Frying is quite easy because it just takes a brazier so you can set up a frying pan or a griddle. Um, the biggest yeah. thing probably is just bread and cheese because it's really, really cheap. So just buying bread and cheese and perhaps if you can afford it, a hunk of roast meat is the standard for working class people on their way to work or on their way home from work. There weren't, there weren't restaurants at that point then. They, they, this, this wasn't something that'd really come in. You say there were taverns and, and drink and stuff like this, but there weren't. There yeah. are taverns where you can eat in and then there are places you can take out. And a lot of the taverns also do take out so, and also do catering. Because if you're, if you're making food uh, and you're selling it, you might as well. This is why I say there's a lot of kind of crossover mm. between them. So if you're a local tavern, as you move through the Tudor period into the 17th century, you start to get a lot of new flavours and new ideas about sociability, really. In the 17th and 18th century, where you do start to see movements towards a, a new form of socialising. And some of that is driven by the fact that we've now got quite big cities and, and bigger and bigger towns and more and more merchants. And yeah. therefore you get a critical mass in areas where you can sell on the street to people and where you can order out. Clearly, if you live in the middle of nowhere, your options are limited. Nowadays, basically, getting takeout or even getting catering or anything like that is basically a bit of an expense. Like, it, it costs money to do it. It's always seen as basically cheaper to eat at home. Was that the case back in medieval Britain? That it was that, were people still cooking at home and eating at home was a sort of cheaper way of, of consuming? Or was actually takeout and getting a big old pie was exactly the same and it, and it, and it made a difference to, 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 their, to their pockets? A lot of it depended on who you were, but yeah, I mean, if you've got no cooking facilities at home, then it's an absolute ball ache to do it yourself. And it, it, it's the hassle as much as the expense. Mm. But these things were cheap. And if you mm. think about it today, if you're really not fussy, you can go down, I don't know, chicken barbecue and get yourself some really badly treated chicken puffed out with water in a really yeah. insipid batter with some really, really, really awful chips on the side, all cooked in low-grade oil. And you're probably only going to pay fibre for that. Sounds delicious. Well, I was going to say, it depends on you know who you are. And for some people, <laughs> that is their choice. Of course, and, yeah, yeah. You know, we shouldn't forget yeah. that today it's very easy to talk about takeout as something that's an option and something that's a treat. But for a lot of people, there still aren't cooking facilities that are any good. If you live in, you know, there are lots of landlords that won't let you have anything more than a microwave. So at that point, actually, something like that, A, it's hot food, which you won't get at home. And B, it's kind of tasty and nice and a lot nicer mm. than cooking mm. at home. And it's quick. So all the reasons why today at the bottom end of the takeout market, you've got a lot of hand wringing going on about how people shouldn't eat this mm. and blah, blah, blah. All those reasons why actually people are eating it. Those are still valid in the past. Sometimes it's not about choice or pleasure. Sometimes it's about necessity. And you see that more and more and more as you get into the 19th century. And obviously we have very big cities mm. where London is, is a huge city and where we have a real problem with the urban poor in particular, mm. where street foods and where the kind of things people are eating, it is absolutely a necessity of life if you didn't have the muffin man and the whelk man and the periwinkle man and the cucumber lady and the shrimp girls you know you you would have starvation yeah and it's those kind of things because people can't cook at home so yes sometimes it is cheaper just as it still mm. is today sometimes unfortunately take us through that sort of shift from the tudor stewards through to well yeah the 18th late 18th century what what, what was how was eating practice changing then how how was consumption changing how was takeaway changing the first big thing is you start to get restaurants as we would recognize them so the the kind of invention story of the restaurant really comes from france the early restaurants were bouillon houses and they were about restoring you hence the word restaurant it comes from se restaurer, so to restore you and oh. the idea was the early ones were based on jaded aristocrats who'd been out on the town night after night after night. They'd mainline larks. They'd eaten all the plovers. They'd had everything covered in <laughs> guilt. You know, they were suffering from gout every which way but up, and they just wanted to cry. So these catering establishments opened to restore their palates, and they were selling restorative broths that would settle their stomachs and allow them to go back out and roister oyster and catch syphilis. So, you know, this was a health <laughs> establishment. And then... 
very quickly because obviously if you're a French aristocrat, you like the idea of Guillon, but you don't actually like it in reality because it's a bit plain and, and you know other people can afford it. Very quickly, mm. they morph into luxury eating houses. Uh, and then there are loads of rules and the guilds get involved. There's a huge fuss. And eventually this thing is founded, which is the Grand Tavernes des Anglais. Uh, and it's all very mixed. There's lots of different stories as to who invented or who opened the first restaurant and what happened when. But the idea in France was they were modelled, ironically, on British taverns. British taverns had three or four different menus a lot of the time, especially coaching inns, because this is the grand age of the turnpike road. And you'd rock up at your local tavern. And if you were a middle class dude, you'd go in the common eating room and you'd have a slice of the roast meat that was sitting there and whatever was there. And if you were slightly wealthier, you'd go into a different room and have a different menu. So you could be fed different foods depending on who you were. And those same establishments would also cater in. And so they those menus would be sent out. So there's, a, again, a crossover. So the French invent the restaurant. Brilliant. Then France collapses in revolution because all of said syphilitic aristocrats are really annoying everybody. Um, the middle classes rise up. They drown all the priests. Napoleon comes along. Blah, 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 blah. Massive wars. Take over of Europe. You know, usual stuff. Uh, Redcoats, Jane Austen. We fast forward through all that bit. And a lot of French emigre chefs end up in Britain going, hey, oh. they've got taverns. Mm. They don't have anything like a restaurant, though, do they? Hey, ho. So they start oh. restaurants in Britain. And for a long, 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 long time, we don't have anything decent until the Savoy opens uh, in uh, 1890. And that's the first big, grand, really good world-beating restaurant in Britain, which, of course, is run by a Frenchman. So if it wasn't for the French Revolution, there wouldn't be the restaurant culture that has come, has kind of come because of that, because people were pushed out to the homes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Clearly, restaurants were happening in France because we loved the French. We hated the French, but we also loved the French. This is kind of real, right. you know. They're absolutely awful. We can't stand them, but we really want to eat their food. <laughs> no, no, no. French people are absolutely terrible. They use so much butter. It's unbelievable. They're absolutely profligate. But I'm going to hire a French chef just so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so there's that kind of level. So they would have arrived anyway. And what was on the menu at the Savoy? Okay, so pick this in. I've turned up. It's my. I've decided to take my friends out. Crane, let's go to the Savoy. And if you're the waiter, what would you be saying? Well, this is this is what's on the menu. Well, first of all, I want a conversation with you. I mean, have you just rocked up? Are you going to sit down and have the prefix menu, which is going to be about seven courses long and you'll be able to go through all the things you would expect at home. So soup, then fish, then an entree, which would be something quite fancy with a sauce in lots of truffles. Yes, I'd like that. <laughs> I'd like a window seat and the most extensive menu, basically. Well, if you're going to go for that, then I would suggest you contact me a few weeks in advance, possibly months, oh, wow. and then we can throw you an exclusive party. So how about if it's your birthday, for example, we can flood the entire downstairs ballroom, we'll put a gondola in it, and the gondola will bear a small elephant with your birthday cake on the back wow <laughs> pretty cool right <laughs> that's incredible so is that genuinely the sort of thing that would happen yeah it happened for one of uh, edward VII's birthday parties i mean that show is that's incredible the other big thing that happens in the 19th century in terms of our eating in britain is that we see a stylistic change from what's called a la française dining which is the sort of everything on the table at once approach absolutely beautiful absolutely incredible really difficult to get your head around if you're kind of a bit nouveau riche mm. and we move from that towards what's called a la russe dining which is the sequential service that we would expect in a restaurant today uh, so mm. that change happens sort of between about 1840 and 1890. It's really gradual. And you end up with this new style called a la russe, which is much easier to manage if you're middle class, because instead of your cook having to provide 20 dishes all ready at once to go up to the table, what you're doing is you're providing two enormous platters, everything portioned out. And now you have a waiter that comes to your side or a footman and says, sir, would you like the snipe? And you say, yes, please, I want the head. <laughs> Uh, and you know that's what happens with that that's the stuff you see in Downton Abbey basically so as we're sort of nudging towards the end of the 19th century your average person the, the poor how are they eating are they, are they eating takeout when they're at, they're at work as, as the factories are sort of growing what's, what's happening there so the diet of the poor is getting worse really at the end of the 19th century if you're alright if you are what uh, what's known as respectable working class so around the end of the 19th century Britain suddenly wakes up to the fact it's got a bit of a problem with poverty you know period Periodically, governments suddenly go, oh, my God, we haven't got enough people to die for the empire. So we'd better do something about it. And this is one of the things that happens at the end of the 19th century. We have the Boer War and suddenly, lo and behold, the British government realises that a third of young men are unfit to join up through malnutrition. 
And this is a real well, shock to the system because you don't want rich people going out and dying because that's wrong. You need to have well, a large quantity of poor men ready to go out and die. And a third of them are unfit. They're just too thin. They're too undernourished. And another third are kind of borderline. So, And you look at the statistics at this point because this unleashes a whole wave of social studies and they are awful you've got height differences of five or six inches between boys of the same age at different schools in different areas depending on their wealth so the diet of the really really poor is terrible they're often quite grassroots campaigns to try and improve school feeding in particular so this is when school dinners start to come in and breakfast clubs in schools because it's seen that if you can get people being fed well when they're younger, then it will carry them through their lives, and and it will. Then you get the First World War. So all of those nascent ideas about improving people's health go out the window, because when you've got that many people being killed, it doesn't really matter if they're undernourished, you're going to just bring them in anyway. But you also get improvements, genuine improvements in manufacturing and industrial food techniques and and also genuinely in the, the, the condition of the working classes. So some of the things that make a lot of difference are things like frozen meat being imported for the first time. And mm. Today we're all like, oh, industrial food prices is absolutely awful. Tinned foods don't go near that. Tinned foods save the lives of mm. thousands of people because you could get meat in your diet for the first time. And while today we eat too much meat, at that point, that's not really an issue. Most people don't eat meat from one week to the other. So having tinned pork, tinned Australian meat, these things are really, really good. Is that when the ready meal, I think that this is sort of starting to creep in, the first idea of, okay. Yes, absolutely. And also fish and chips, which is really important. So that comes around in the 1860s, born out of Jewish street food because you can't cook on the Sabbath. So what tends to happen is fried fish is sold, pre-fried fish. So that's bought by the Jewish in the East End and also Manchester. And potato chips come in around the same time, possibly from France. No one's sure. But a match made in heaven is born. And after the 1860s, fish and chips is huge. And it's cheap and it's nutritional and it feeds the working classes. And it's so important that it doesn't even go on the ration in both world wars because it is seen as fundamentally important, both nutritionally and in terms of morale to the British working class. So fish and chips great invention of the 19th century can i ask you about one thing i've i have this daydream that i always have which is that if there was something that happened where i was suddenly dropped back in the victorian era and with my current skills what would i do to make sure i survived and i've decided i would introduce the beef burger to britain basically i have an idea if it's like 1850 would people have gone for it yes they would have okay good and did it exist yeah 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 yeah. totally i mean it it pretty much exists not quite they didn't call it beef burger at that point but it's there and it is (laughs) In America, it's already sort of about to be sold as a street food. So I'm going to be fine. I don't need to go to a workhouse. It's going to be okay. Just call it a patty, flavour it up. In fact, if you if you pretend it's from Hamburg, then uh, because they do ah. really, really good beef. So you could call it like a Hamburg steak, uh, which is in fact what they were called. And uh, and then you could, yeah, the mashing up is really good. What, the trouble is, in order to sell the burger, you're going to have to invent a good industrial mincing machine. Ah, here's your problem. So maybe you should gen up on mincing because that hasn't been invented yet. And that's really what allows the burger to come through as a street food. But you did say that the fork had been invented. Yeah. It's going to take you a long time to wow. mash up. I mean, it's going to be early. a really expensive burger, isn't it? I've got a three-year-old. I'm used to getting up early. It'll be fine. I'll get up early with my fork and I'll start mincing. It's going to be fine. The other thing that uh, we've noticed a lot of our guests have chosen as their takeaway of choice is a curry. And I wondered when that became a popular thing in the UK. Was it quite recently or or actually had it been around for a while? Well, it's popular as a food in the 19th century. So we obviously are trading with India from really the big period is is the 17th century onwards. Uh, We gain a lot of French possessions in India in the early 18th century. And by the mid 18th century, the East India Company is behaving abominably uh, and is starting to take over enclaves in India and colonise India. And all the sort of horrible things that follow really come out of the, the 18th century. But one of the good things that comes out is that a lot of the people that go out to go and work in the Raj, so whether they're soldiers or administrators, there's a huge amount of British people that go out to India to just to work in admin. Uh, a lot of them mm. die because they're not really very used to swamps um, and they go out 
you know, wearing British clothing and don't really sort of like, don't get used to the heat. And it, it does kill a lot of people. But the ones that don't die often develop a real taste for the foods that they eat in India. I mean, really, really love it because a lot of people go out, they, they marry Indians and they have Indian servants and they try and keep up to all intents and purposes, a British lifestyle, which means they need to have servants, they need to cook, they need this thing. But obviously, they're not going to import everybody. And invariably, even if they say, right, what I really want tonight is a boeuf a la mode, what they're going to end up with is something filtered through the cook's experience. So inevitably, mm. anybody who goes out in t- uh, to go and work in India ends up eating Indian food. Uh, and so this, uh, this concept, this very British concept of curry is born, and, and curry just means spiced sauce or stew. It doesn't it doesn't have a meaning really other than that it's not it's just a really weird thing it ignores the entire richness of regional cuisine on the indian subcontinent which is enormous yeah. and very rich but when the british come back over here this word curry ends up as a catch-all phrase for everything that's indian and actually when you look at early menus from indian takeaways and restaurants in the early 19th century the first curry house is founded in 1810 the hindustani and the menu for that has got things like kitrion which becomes anglicized to kedgeri it's got pilaus mm. on it has there's a huge range of things which the spelling is all over the place but when you say the words out loud you can see where they've come from and also yes. where they're going to go to. And then it becomes bastardised into a catch-all leftover dish where you buy your ready-made curry powder and you add it to your leftover chicken and it becomes a kind of middle-class leftover dish. And it's phenomenally popular. So if you were ordering from a street food place, the chances are in Victorian Britain, you would be able to get yourself a curry on the street. Oh, really? But the real growth period, of course, is when you start to see waves of Indian and particularly actually Bangladeshi immigration mm. uh, after the Second World War. So it, you would be able to potentially order a curry, but I don't want to overplay that for the period before the 1940s mm. and particularly the 1970s after you get um, the, the various wars in Bangladesh and Pakistan, people coming over here and starting Indian restaurants. And then you get that kind of going out for an Indian and the invention of Balti and all these very, very, very British quote unquote curries which are largely sold to very very drunk people after all the other <laughs> restaurants are closed and that's why right. Indians become so embedded in the culture in the 70s because they're the only places you can get food after the pubs are closed. Well take us through the 20th century how, how have we moved to this current state now where you can get anything you want whenever you want from every cuisine in the world on your phone, click an app, it'll turn up at your door. What, Brilliant, what's been it? the move? It's, it, is, it is amazing. How have we made that final sort of move? Well, I think one of the big things is industrialisation. Uh, it does become a lot easier to produce food that people can access and afford when you've got industrial processes. And not everything about industrialisation is bad. So, you know, the mincing machine that happens in a factory to turn out mints that as a as a potential street food seller you can buy is brilliant yeah. how can you have mass produced burgers if you don't have a really good mincing machine and so burgers yeah. and that sort of the american fast food style takeout that all really comes out of America, emerges in America in the 20s and 30s. So that's when you're hitting um, sort of the White Castle Company and McDonald's is after the Second World War. But you know, all those sort of big things that are happening in America, drive-throughs, they're all happening in the 20s and 30s in America, not here. Second World War comes along. You've got all the processes in place in the States to make these things, but we haven't got them yet. And then up come the GIs. These sort of strapping Americans of all colours and creeds. And they're all in these gorgeous uniforms. They're all really healthy and muscular and chewing gum and swigging coke and dragging (laughs) nylons behind them. And they are super glam. And oh my God, get me some American funk over here. So the kind of country is then ripe for an American expansion, as it were, straight after the war. And then we've got rationing that kind of continues. And you're just like, oh my God, by 1954, everyone's gagging for a steak. Uh, And it is not really a coincidence, therefore, that Wimpy comes along just after and opens in a lion's tea rooms uh, in in London. Oh, really? And and that's when you get the start of that fast food culture in Britain. And that burger and chips takeout is is after the war. Americans are great. We want a steak. Oh, my God. Wimpy's here. Get in. Please come to Mama. So the timing of that, the, the excitement of sort of, of new quick food at a point when people have been unable to get what yeah. they want, is that is, is, is a real sort of catalytic aspect of that? It is. And the 50s is one of those areas where just food culture explodes. Uh, also, yeah. you have started, you're starting to get a lot more women working. So you're starting to get women 
not able to just are not wanting to spend all of their time in the home. Some women want to. A lot of women are desperate to get back in the home, tie themselves to the sink, look after the kids, buy a really nice new oven and a vacuum cleaner and Bob's your, uncle, Bob's your uncle. Others do not want to do that at all. So this is a, a huge era of things things in the house. So this is the point where home cooking, there's a lot of pressure on people to cook in the home. You get the invention of things like the Kenwood, you get fridges come in in a big way. So prior to the 1960s, very few homes have a fridge. Uh, and of course, once you get to the 70s, homes start to get freezers. And that enables uh, ready meals to develop and frozen uh. ready meals to develop in a way they haven't before. And the microwave comes in as well in the 1970s, which means that not only can you microwave ready meals, but you can re-microwave your takeout if you've got that. And then you get a large wave of people coming in from what was the empire, but is now falling apart and dissolving and becoming the Commonwealth. So you've got a, a large wave of Indian immigration. You also have, of course, the Windrush generation coming across. So you end up with Caribbean food in those areas where people settle, which is fantastic and frankly deserves to be much, much better known. Mm. And you've got as well, lots of Chinese immigration. Why do you think that is that Caribbean food still hasn't quite punched through the same way as Indian food has? I think it's partly numbers uh, because there are a lot more Indian restaurants in the UK than there are Caribbean restaurants or Caribbean influenced restaurants. I think it's partly because the Bangladeshi model was very much that catering was badly paid, but you could make a living out of it. So whatever you'd been doing before, the model was that you came to the UK and you set up a restaurant. Uh, and it didn't matter what training you'd had or what you'd done before previously. You know, Brits, let's face it, not exactly the most culinary educated palates in the world. <laughs> Pretty easy to feed them a bit of pap after the pub. And for a long time, a lot of Indian restaurants were of that ilk. And, and the idea that one would get a Michelin star would have been unthinkable. And it's only really been in the last 15 to 20 years, I think, that we've started to recognise that yeah. there's no such thing as Indian food. And that Bangladeshi food, Pakistani food, um, Gujarati food, yeah. you know, they're all completely different. And that those are recognisable, interesting areas. And that there are, you know, it, it, it's unthinkable. The way we think about food now from India versus the way we were thinking about it in the 70s, it, it, you know, continents apart. And the same things happened with Chinese food as well. Again, there was a model come over start up a Chinese restaurant or Chinese takeaway, often still selling fish and chips at the same time. as You still see them everywhere. We've got one in the town I live in, Chinese takeaway yeah. that also does fish and chips. I mean, you know, anywhere outside sort of big urban centres, the chances are your Chinese takeaway will have a list of dishes you can recite with your eyes closed. Prawn crackers will come with everything because we all like deep fried stuff and you can get chips and gravy on the side. And it's really depressing, actually, because, again, there's no awareness of, of regionality and cuisine there's no awareness mm. that just as actually the majority of indian restaurants are actually nearly all called sillet and they're all run by people from one or two cities most chinese restaurants actually are Sichuan. you know and, and again people have no awareness of hunan cuisine or, or any of the other things and we're starting to see that but it's really slow you, i think you could start to see a bit of a shift in terms of in terms of Sichuanese and hunan cuisine I, I, there seemed to be more of an appetite for that especially yeah. especially Sichuanese in the in the sort of gongbao sort of the peppered sense and yeah. I, I could see a bit of a shift friends wanting more of that and maybe yeah. a bit of a movement away from what is and i think the nice thing as well is that because a lot of universities have gotten a lot of chinese students now who actually won't settle for the usual sort of wontons and a mm. sort of sweet and sour horrible orange sauce thing what you are seeing especially in university towns now is the kind of Chinese restaurant which is very cheap and cheerful and full of Chinese students sort of hunched over hot pots um, uh, with a book and they are amazing and where you can get the stuff like deep fried chicken feet and uh, liver and squid and like really really amazing things like you're digging bits of pork out of oodles of uh, chili and oh my god the one in Cambridge which I love um, <laughs> craving going back to it um, and they didn't do any takeout for the last year and a half and I kept looking so the delivery to home aspect is is that now a very recent thing really in terms of modern takeaway like yeah. 30 40 years ago were people doing that were people really picking up is this is, is this a thing that really has been in the last no people were picking up uh, I mean the, yeah. the delivery to home thing as well obviously the last year and a half has really changed the landscape of takeout and yeah. how takeout works and a lot of the places that have switched to takeout because they've had to are saying, actually, we're going to stick with this as something that we may or may not do. We might do it on a limited basis. We might we might, might not bother, but actually it's a thing. But yeah, the delivery hope to home system. We used to have a lot of deliveries. I mean, if you look at supermarkets, go up to the 19th century, 1930s, 1940s, your grocer would deliver. 
you'd go in and you'd order what yeah. you wanted and the grocer's boy would deliver and the butcher would deliver. And then you get the supermarkets who don't bother because they don't need to. And now, of course, all the supermarkets deliver and they will think it's something new. And actually, no, we've just had a sort of 50-year period where the supermarkets just ruled the roost and didn't have to make any effort. And now they are. So I think the the Deliveroo's and the Just Eats and the Uber Eats and all those delivery services which enable places to deliver without having to hire their own delivery people, it's in some way, I know there are issues with how they pay and the, the cuts they take and all the rest of it, but mm. they do enable more and more convenience. And ultimately, there will always be a market for food driven by convenience, whether it's your Roman gladiator striding off the gladiatorial pitch, having killed five bulls and six Christians, who just wants a quick snack and a pick-me-up before he gets back out there, that's convenience. Or if it's your pilgrim in the medieval period wanting a pie. It is all about convenience. And today, convenience is not, at the moment, coming home from work and grabbing something. It's, I'm working from home. I really, really can't be bothered to cook yet again. I'm going to pick up the phone. And in 10, 15 minutes, I'm going to grab my bag from the bloke at the door. And hey, presto. So it's always about convenience. In 10 to 15 minutes, I can have some thorax lining delivered to my door. <laughs> there you go. You enjoy without, without having to do at home. You, you, do you know what? You've got your mincer. You've got your burger concept. You've got your thorax lining. You've got your nutmeg grater in your pocket. I would say you're combining historical eras here into something great. Yeah, winning. Yeah, you know, I'm just waiting for it. Like cranes, I don't know, what could we call it? Cranes carcasses. Okay, cranes carcasses works. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> given you've given us such an incredible rich history of the past, what do you think the future holds for takeaways? Mm. And what do you think the factors will be that, that, that will determine our eating habits in the future? I think what I think Sam is saying, for instance, will they hover? That sort of thing. That's what he means. <laughs> what is the future? <laughs> That's what you mean, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Well, I mean, in terms of food trends, obviously, there are loads of different food trends full stop. But vegetarianism, low meat foods and plant based foods are clearly a trend that's here to stay. And along those lines, I suspect that things like derived bug bug protein are going to be the big things that we see. Mm. So when you're looking at your cool fat wrapped burgers... I reckon you should be looking at something that's called, I don't know, bug you like. And it's basically corn, but made from <laughs> insects. And that's your big burger thing. But it might still be wrapped in corn fat because nose to tail eating is also a big thing. And you have a serving of testicles on the side or a deep fried willy because that will be your sausage. <laughs> uh, so I think those are the trends that we will we will see. And I think also a lot of the stuff around delivery is about um, sort of how you make it something that does fit with the environment. So a lot of the packaging... Yeah. There's still packaging problems at the moment, let's face it, with an awful lot of it. So I think we're going to start to see things like edible packaging and, you know, all those lovely things. Um, Annie, that has been really an absolute joy. Just fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I've absolutely loved every moment. Um, and you you have a book as well at the moment. Is, is, what, what have you got coming up? And what, what, is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners about that they might enjoy? Who, who people have been fascinated? We touched on Queen Victoria's eating. I do have a book called The Greedy Queen, Eating with Victoria, which delves into her eating habits in a lot of detail. And the current book that I'm sort of, or was on the trail with, I should say, before the world collapsed, uh, was Victory in the Kitchen, The Life of Churchill's Cook, which is a trot through 20th century food, I would say. It is about Churchill and his eating habits and his cook. It's a, it's a biography of Winston Churchill's longest serving cook, a woman called Georgina Landemar. So it's a look at her life, but through her life, you're really looking at 20th century food and how it changed, how it went from sort of Edwardian grandeur and restaurant food and stuff that was ridiculous to seasonal eating, much more pared down eating, and how the Churchills got around the ration. So all sorts of things. <laughs> was he eating well during the war, out of interest? Uh, yeah, he didn't really notice the rationing. Could you give us a quick example of something that Churchill ate? Plover's eggs. Honestly, I'm amazed there are any plovers left in Britain. Between him and the king, like, there's so many plover's eggs. What is a plover? Is that a small bird? What, what is a plover? A plover is a very, very small wading bird that you sometimes see on beaches, especially in, in Norfolk. Annie, uh, you're like this. We, we will find them on the beaches. That's what you used to say, didn't you? We, we will, are. yes. Well, he did find <laughs> them. Lovely stuff, right? Somebody else found them on the beach. I mean, they're tiny, really <laughs> tiny. So, yeah. But, I mean, he got around the ration in the same way anybody else did. You know, you're living in Birmingham. You've got a mate who lives in Coventry. Your mate keeps rabbits. You've got carrots. Your mate sends you a rabbit. You send them some carrots. Winston Churchill's mates with the king. 
So he doesn't send anything back. He just gets, you know, venison. That's amazing. <laughs> well, well, well. And that book again is called... Victory in the Kitchen, The Life of Churchill's Cook. Uh, and I've just written one about Christmas as well. So. Oh, have you? What, what's that? The history of Christmas, is it? Uh, it's called A Christmas We Feast. And it's all about what we eat at Christmas, uh, why we eat it and where it's come from. So that one's more of a book of sort of essay, short essays with lots of... Fascinating. Flatulence gags, actually. Um, <laughs> Perfect. What more can you ask for? Um, Annie, they, they all sound amazing. We will... We'll send out to our listeners and we'll put it on our Instagram, all this sort of stuff, uh, links to that. Uh, but it's been an absolute joy. And thank you for giving us so much time. Uh, really appreciate it. I'm just amazing. So that was the wonderful Dr. Annie Gray there talking about the history of the takeaway. What a brilliant chat. And what a fascinating, fascinating person. Go do check out her books and her TV shows. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening to the show. We really hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, spread the word, uh, subscribe, and of course, leave us a review because it makes uh, so much of a difference to us. We really want as many people to hear the show as possible. We've got some brilliant people coming up, including... So next week, we have the amazing Nigel Ung, who is a comedian, but rose to fame with the character Uncle Roger, who uh, uh, reviews uh, food uh, on his Instagram. And he's now like one of the biggest social media stars in the UK, if not the world. It was a lot of fun, so join us next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.